So we have this strange phenomenon, as Kant assures us, of a mind believing with all its strength in the real presence of a set of things of no one of which it can form any notion whatsoever. William James An atheist, agnostic, or theological non-cognitivist is someone who doesn't believe in God because they can't make any sense of the idea of God. God is unintelligible, either because his attributes are meaningless, lacking content, or incoherent, outright contradictory. Before we run through some of God's internal inconsistencies, let's talk about a few problems with what's called negative theology. Many of God's attributes offer us no positive information about what God is. They describe God in purely negative terms, or via negativa, immaterial, immutable, supernatural, disembodied, invisible. Many of God's attributes, like the ones I just listed, offer no information about what God is. There's no positive content. They merely define God in the negative, by what he's not. Supernatural just means not natural. Spaceless just means not in space. Immaterial just means not material. Well, what is he? In his book, Atheism, The Case Against God, George Smith makes the argument, quote, The first problem with negative theology is that, if God is described solely in terms of negation, it is impossible to distinguish him from non-existence. God is not matter, neither is non-existence. God does not have limitations, neither does non-existence. God is not visible, neither is non-existence. God does not change, neither does non-existence. God cannot be described, neither can non-existence. And so on down the list of negative predicates. If the theist wishes to distinguish his belief in God from the belief in nothing at all, he must give some positive substance to the concept of God. End quote. In a similar vein, God is supposed to be spaceless and timeless. He's outside of space and time. But saying God exists spacelessly and timelessly is arguably just another way of saying God doesn't exist. I like the way the YouTuber TMM puts it. Another way of saying something exists outside of space and time is that this thing exists nowhere and never. I don't know what it means for something to exist in the absence of space-time or at the very least some kind of extension through some kind of dimension. End quote. Further complicating God's spaceless and timeless existence is the fact that he's supposed to be a conscious mind. It's often said that God is immutable, or changeless. That can work if he's outside of time, since change implies the passage of time. But how can a mind exist changelessly? Consciousness is always in flux. So how could a conscious mind be completely static? Consciousness is a process or a series of events. There's a stream of consciousness. So how can a conscious mind exist with no passage of time, or be changeless? That seems like a contradiction, a conscious mind that doesn't change. The question that needs to be answered is, can consciousness exist in quiescence? In other words, not in flux. If not, then there's a contradiction between God's existing outside of space-time and his being conscious. Let's talk about the incoherence of one of God's alleged actions, creating time. The first moment of time was at the Big Bang, but it's a contradiction in terms to say that God caused time to begin to exist. Any sequence of events, or cause preceding some effect, seems to presuppose the existence of time. You can't have a sequence of events without time. Apologists will reply that God's choice to create time, an act of creation, wasn't a sequence of events as if there wasn't time and then there was. 
They agree that that would be incoherent, but causes and their effects can be simultaneous to one another, they argue. And this doesn't seem outright incoherent, like claiming a sequence of events took place before time, but the problem for me is that simultaneous is also a word that presupposes the existence of time. I'm not sure how to make sense of anything being sequential or simultaneous, entirely absent of any notion whatsoever of space-time. The theist bears the burden for explaining how a conscious mind can changelessly make choices and perform actions outside of space-time. It just sounds like gibberish to me, if not contradictory. How could an omnipotent and omniscient being feel fear, or frustration, or despair? Those experiences are produced by limitations that God doesn't share with us. So how could he be acquainted with all aspects of these emotions? How could an omniscient being know fear, frustration, or despair? On the other hand, how could an omniscient being lack such knowledge? Omniscient and Disembodied God is omniscient, but he doesn't possess all sorts of knowledge associated with having a body, and not just knowledge that his morally perfect nature keeps him from acquiring. How can God be all-knowing and disembodied, since there are types of knowledge that are associated with having a body? Only a being with a body can know how to perform gymnastics, for example. There's know-how, and there's what-it's-like knowledge that a disembodied mind can't have. And not just what-it's-like knowledge for humans, but for all non-human animals as well. Only a dog knows exactly what it's like to be a dog. God's attributes of being omniscient and disembodied are logically incompatible. A disembodied and omniscient being does not exist. Omnibenevolence God's attribute of being infinitely good or omnibenevolent is internally incoherent if we suppose that mercy, forgiveness, and justice are good. These traits can't coexist without coming into conflict with each other. God is perfectly good, and is thus perfectly merciful, and perfectly just. In other words, everyone gets what they deserve, and no one gets what they deserve. God is a good judge. He's just. That's why he has to send people to hell, I'm told. People have to be held accountable for their actions. Except when they're not, and God is merciful. There's a tension between perfect justice if justice is taken to mean that everyone gets what they deserve, and mercy and forgiveness to mean that no one really gets what they deserve. And one doesn't need to claim to have the final analysis of justice or mercy to notice that there's a tension between the two. Of course you can redefine justice into something other than people getting what they deserve, and redefine mercy into something other than people not getting what they deserve. It's not impossible that God created a conception of moral goodness that applies only to him, and a conception that applies only to us. But here's what I think probably happened. Mercy is good. Justice is good. God is infinitely good. So he has both of those traits to the superlative degree. And the people thinking this didn't realize that you can't be infinitely good if that entails being infinitely just and merciful. The onus is on the theist to solve this problem in a way that doesn't lead to other problems. For example, rendering the traits meaningless, which is what happened with the word holy. See episode 6. Isn't it more likely that early Christians just didn't think it all the way through when they were adding superlative trait after superlative trait to God 
not realizing that it led to absurdities. Omniscient and morally perfect. There are other types of bodily knowledge that God, as a morally perfect being, doesn't possess. How can God be omniscient and not know evil? I can know evil since my will and ability are not limited by having an all-good nature. I can have carnal knowledge, though the Christian God apparently cannot. If God is omniscient, he's acquainted with lust and envy. He knows what it's like to feel lust, and what it's like to do all sorts of things if he's omniscient. But God is supposed to be morally perfect, and thus can't have experienced envy or lust. So we have a conflict between omniscience and moral perfection. Can non-omniscient beings know more than an omniscient being? If God is morally perfect and disembodied, he doesn't know envy, lust, or how to play guitar. This means I possess knowledge that an all-knowing being doesn't possess, and can perform actions that an omnipotent being can't perform. And that alone seems like an absurdity. In fact, my cat has knowledge that an omniscient being like the Christian God doesn't have, just by being a cat. The usual response to this absurdity is that God, though all-knowing, doesn't know everything. God has all knowledge that it is logically possible for God to have. It's not possible for God to know sin, for example. And the same goes for his omnipotence. God has all the power that it's logically possible for a being with his nature to possess. We'll return to the circularity of that definition in a moment. As Michael Martin puts it in Atheism, a Philosophical Justification, quote, One normally supposes that the following is true. If a person is omniscient, then that person has knowledge that any non-omniscient being has. End quote. That seems like a pretty reasonable principle. To reject it would mean that non-omniscient beings know more than an omniscient being, at least on certain subjects, sinful and non-sinful. The absurdity of an all-knowing being who doesn't know everything can be resolved by adding more qualifiers to God's omni-attributes, but the cost is high. And it doesn't change the fact that you and I and my cat can know things that an all-knowing being doesn't know, and we can perform actions that an omnipotent being can't perform. These qualifiers often reduce these attributes of God to total circularity. If God is omnipotent because he can do anything so long as it's logically possible, and not contrary to his particular nature, then by that definition, other beings, in addition to God, can be considered omnipotent. All of the, well, God's not the type of being who, qualifiers I'm aware of, have the consequence of rendering numerous beings omnipotent and omniscient. And I'm also unaware of any such conceptions of omniscience and omnipotence that bar non-omnipotent beings from performing actions that the all-powerful being can perform, and non-omniscient beings from having knowledge that the all-knowing being doesn't know. I think these problems can be resolved, but it creates a new problem. If God's omnipotence and omniscience are defined in such a way so as not to be totally circular, and accidentally include other beings besides God, and so the omnipotent and omniscient being doesn't lack knowledge and power that non-omni-beings possess, then our conception of God terminates in pantheism. Let me explain why. When I say that my cat and I can do things that God can't do, and know things that God can't know, I'm simply pointing out that God doesn't possess every power and bit of knowledge that everything in the world has. And remember, I'm not just talking about sinful actions and knowledge. For example, a disembodied mind doesn't possess all kinds of knowledge that one acquires through being a body. An omnipotent being doesn't know fear or frustration. 
the only way to ensure that God would possess every bit of power and every bit of knowledge that everything in the world has would require him to be identical to the world. He doesn't possess all the knowledge that everything in the world has. For that, he would have to be the world. He doesn't possess all the power that everything in the world has. For that, he would have to be the world. On one hand, it seems absurd to claim that non-omnipotent beings can perform actions that an all-powerful being cannot, or that non-omniscient beings can have knowledge that an all-knowing being cannot. On the other hand, the only way to ensure that God has all the knowledge and can perform all the actions that exist in the natural world is to be synonymous with the natural world. If he's not identified with the natural world, there will be knowledge and power that he lacks that non-omnipotent things in the world possess. What is it like to be a bat? What is it like to be that same bat ten seconds later? What is it like to be that same bat eating a bug? There's a practically infinite amount of what-it's-like knowledge that can only be known through direct acquaintance that God doesn't have. And for the sake of argument, I'll even allow you to bar sinful knowledge. Similarly, and perhaps more importantly, there's all kinds of power that can only be had through being the thing in question, whether it's a bat or a blade of grass. Maybe a theist could wriggle out of the omniscience bit by appealing to God's omnipresence. He has all the what-it's-like knowledge through being everywhere and being able to observe everything. This doesn't help with sinful knowledge, since presumably God doesn't know what it's like to commit sin, and all kinds of colorful examples spring to mind. Additionally, I think the omnipresence rebuttal may have implications for the nature of consciousness that would be unwelcome to non-materialists, assuming the theist isn't a materialist. Without going into too much detail, in order for God to have all of your direct acquaintance knowledge without simply being you would mean that experiences and beliefs are merely complex behavioral dispositions that can be known in their entirety from a third-person perspective. We should note that this is a fairly controversial position to hold in philosophy of mind, but this would allow God to have all the acquaintance knowledge that before only a pantheist God could possess. I think a theist would have to be a materialist about consciousness in order for this answer to work, and a certain type of materialist at that, but we'll be nice and not question why they suddenly became materialists. The issue is that if we suppose beliefs and experiences are nothing but behavioral dispositions in order to solve this problem, to quote Martin, God wouldn't have to have a body in order to have knowledge by acquaintance, but he would have to have a body in order to have any belief about someone else's belief or experience. Since, by definition, God is pure spirit without a body, he cannot exist if he has any beliefs, which he must in order to be omniscient. End quote. Let me break down what Martin is getting at there. The theist, in order to protect God's omniscient status, has taken the position that some knowledge associated with consciousness is not solely available through direct acquaintance, as is often supposed. This allows God to remain omniscient without morphing into a pantheistic God since now he can have access to experiences and beliefs through third-person observation alone. He is omnipresent, after all, so observation is no problem. But this comes at a high cost. Beliefs and experiences are nothing but complex behavioral dispositions on this view. One can capture every aspect of belief and experience through third-person description alone. Relation, structure, and disposition can capture everything there is to know about beliefs, experiences, and any other knowledge associated with consciousness. This is the knowledge that God was lacking before the theist decided that every aspect of all those things was observable from a third-person perspective, as opposed to there being an aspect of consciousness 
only available via direct acquaintance, from a first-person perspective, having to be that entity. And that way lies pantheism. So the Christian has avoided the pantheism trap by denying that there's any aspect of consciousness that cannot be known via third-person observation. The problem with this metaphysical behaviorism, as Martin points out, is that God has beliefs and experiences. But God is pure spirit. He doesn't have behavioral dispositions at all. So how on earth does he have beliefs and experiences if we've already said that they're nothing but complex behavioral dispositions? On this view, disembodied mind is a contradiction in terms. You whack down one contradiction, another one pops up. So omnipresence isn't able to help the theist wriggle out of the omniscience part of the problem without leading them to affirm positions that they don't normally hold, and without leading to more contradictions. The only theist who emerges unscathed is the pantheist. So what about omnipotence? As Colin McGinn puts it, quote, Either God has powers, sinful or otherwise, that do not properly belong to his nature as divine, or he lacks powers that other things possess thus being less than all-powerful. The concept of an all-powerful being is incoherent. To be a thing of a certain type is necessarily to have a limited range of powers, because powers and natures go hand in hand. End quote. Attempting to improve upon God's attributes often terminates in a circularity that renders more beings than God omnipotent or omniscient, or it terminates in identifying God with all of nature, in other words, pantheism. Pantheism seems to me to be the only way to preserve omnipotence and omniscience, but conceiving of God as a pantheistic God is tantamount to denying the existence of the Abrahamic God. To be clear, you can have a coherent God who's omnipotent and omniscient, but you have to become a pantheist to get there. The only omnipotent, omniscient God is a pantheistic God. Does Jesus help? I'm sure at some point along the way, Christians will object that Jesus was God incarnate. God can't know fear or despair, since he's omnipotent, but Jesus did. God is disembodied, but Jesus had a body, so there's no problem with God having bodily knowledge that would otherwise be unavailable to a disembodied mind. Now, I know that there are huge gaps in the biography of Jesus, but I seriously doubt that he was doing all the things humans have ever done with their bodies in those gaps. Secondly, the Incarnation doesn't grant God the acquaintance knowledge possessed by non-human animals. But there's a much bigger problem with the appeal to Jesus as a source for God's knowledge. If God had to become incarnate in order to gain knowledge, then he wasn't omniscient before the Incarnation. God is supposed to always have been omniscient, omniscient in all possible worlds, in other words, necessarily omniscient. But to claim that Jesus helps answer these problems is to say that God wasn't always omniscient. As I've tried to argue, an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, timeless, disembodied mind cannot exist. What's the value of theological non-cognitivism? Non-cognitivism can be used in service of creating new divine hiddenness arguments. God is hidden from our minds in a deep and fundamental way, if non-cognitivists are correct. This is inconsistent with a God who wants us to know him. 
Ichthyism also has the value of bringing attention to the fact that most believers can't explain the nature of God in an intelligible way, but rather offload the doxastic labor of actually understanding God and making sense of the idea of God to religious authorities. The idea of God is quite foggy even to those who believe in him. I suspect that no one really understands what a timeless, spaceless, omnipotent, omniscient, all-good, disembodied mind actually is. When they think of a god, they don't think of that. They think of some experience, or of a vague white light, or an image of Jesus. Igtheism also highlights interesting epistemic questions pertaining to God's nature. God's attributes are mere stipulations. They are not discovered. They are usually described in a book, sometimes a holy book, sometimes not, or they're inferred from the book, but they're not discovered or demonstrated. Consulting ancient texts that are allegedly inspired and parsing their contents is a major part of religious epistemology, and it happens to be a particularly unreliable means of acquiring information about the world. How did you come by this information, as always, is a question to which theists can't seem to find a convincing answer. And finally, a strong version of a non-cognitivist argument could amount to an a priori argument for positive atheism, negative atheism being the lack of a belief in God, and positive atheism being the disbelief in a God. So a successful non-cognitivist argument would provide us with reason to positively disbelieve in a God a priori, using reason alone. It would sort of be the atheist equivalent of the ontological argument. If a given conception of God is incoherent, in other words, it is internally contradictory, like the God we've been talking about today, that God does not exist.